Mentality monsters. I'm going to use the word with the Irish well rugby done. team. Someone pressed that arm. It must be. Let's take it off Liverpool. Let's take it off the Reds. And let's attach it to the Ireland rugby team. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. A look back on principally Ireland winning the Grand Slam at the Aviva Stadium. First time that it has been achieved in Dublin. 1948 was in Belfast. The other Grand Slams achieved in 2009 in Cardiff and 2018 away from home at Twickenham against England. Uh, but understandably, pretty much all the back pages and the vast majority of the coverage across this Sunday afternoon are heavily dominated by Ireland's Grand Slam. And already with kind of half an eye towards the World Cup already, even Jonathan Sexton on the way of his press conference last night saying, roll on the World Cup. Up entirely unprompted. So back page of the Mail on Sunday today is Wham Slam, thank you Dan, after Dan Sheehan scored two tries during the game in Ireland's victory by 29 points to 16 against England. Four bonus points picked up across the five games. Slam is in the bag, now for the world is the Sunday Mirror Sport again already taking a look forward to the World Cup and they're also looking at Ten Station. Ten Hag will land a bumper deal from new United owners. That's after the prospective owners from both Qatar and Sir Jim Radcliffe met with the club at the tail end of last week uh, for quite lengthy meetings about the Glazers potentially uh, selling the club in the coming weeks. Yet another hat trick is Erling Haaland who has now gone over 40 goals for this season on the back page of the Sunday People's Sport and again a similar story about Eric Ten Hag set to get a new contract from Manchester United heading into just his second season at Old Trafford and also that he's going to be backed with big name signings. Remarkable comments by Antonio Conte that's uh, understandably been serialised in quite a few of the papers. Conte brand stars Selfish is the back page splash there from Neil McLean a furious Antonio Conte calling his players selfish and putting the blame on them for their poor season after yesterday's draw against Southampton. The Sunday World Sport slam-tastic. It is Sexton uh, lifting the Grand Zers. Well, he's lifting the Six Nations title and the Triple Crown being held in the background by Gary Ringrose and James Ryan. And they're also looking at Paddy's Day at Palace which is Irishman Paddy McCarthy who will manage Crystal Palace against Arsenal this afternoon as they look to pick up their first win of the calendar year of 2023. And then in the Sunday independent sport today Sweetest Slam which is Johnny Sexton's mild jig after the Irish try which he had to laugh about in the press conference yesterday he claimed he was jumping and not dancing Andy Farrell said the only dancing he'll be doing is afterwards in Dublin Bernard Jackman winning ugly is its own beauty across pages 4 and 5 which we'll talk about and Eamon Sweeney claims that this Irish rugby team is the best Irish team in any sport ever Delighted to say Gavin Casey and Sinead O'Carly here with us How you getting on guys? Yeah, not quite basking in the greatest team Ireland has ever produced in anything, I don't think. Are you, Gav? I'm basking in it without necessarily agreeing. Look, hyperbole is always going to be there and this always happens when a team has just achieved something. So naturally there is that feeling that you go, you know what, they've just won a Grand Slam, probably won the most comfortable slam that's ever been won in the history of the Six Nations. So therefore, Gav, let's say this is the best Irish rugby team ever. I think people could maybe get on board with that. But since the best team ever, like I'm thinking of the boxing team in 2012 at the Olympics, I'm thinking of the Roars in recent years, even in recent memory without going back too far, there's a big claim to make before they go to a World Cup later this year. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I wouldn't really lend too much credence to it in all honesty. And I think maybe it is one of those things that you just say out loud after the event and see what people think of it. And 
listen, Eamon's a, a brilliant writer. Like, uh, I agree with him more often than I than I disagree with him. But I, I always find it difficult to compare achievements in sport anyway. Like, it's apples and oranges and, like, the, the threshold of difficulty or, or the tariff of difficulty in various sports is different. The amount of work you have to put into it to get to this point is different. The number of people playing it on a global level is different. And all of those sorts of things. So even when we have conversations, as we routinely do, both on this show and pretty much in every Irish sporting conversation about the greatest Irish athlete of all time. And like, how could Kayleigh Taylor be the best when not a lot of women actually box in the first place? And then you say, well, what about our cultural impact and all these sorts of things? And as somebody who covers boxing, it's a conversation I've had too many times. I just feel like it's pointless to compare them. And I like to enjoy things in isolation. And if we could confine it to rugby or, or refine the conversation to uh, a strictly rugby context, I think absolutely this is the greatest Irish rugby team that has ever existed or has ever played the game. And I am excited by the reality that compared to past iterations of this team in World Cup years, there's an enormous amount of scope left for, or enormous scope left for improvement in this team uh, ahead of a World Cup, which should be frightening for the other countries and which... I don't think we've experienced in the past. I think when we were in the lead up, I say we, obviously talking about Ireland, in the lead up to the 2019 World Cup, they'd beaten the All Blacks the previous November. I think that was the, the, the that was the culmination of, of Schmidt's era and I don't know that it was ever going, going to go beyond that. I don't think the team could have gotten better necessarily because it was quite a prescriptive style of play that they had and they nailed everything on that day against the All Blacks. From that moment onwards, I think maybe there was a, a bit of a slip. This time, we've beaten England to win a Grand Slam and Ireland were probably at their poorest in the tournament, probably one of their two worst performances of the tournament, including Italy. And to beat that that England team who properly pitched up, do it comfortably while missing most of your lines or missing the mark for the majority of the game uh, is uh, something to be genuinely excited about, I think. Yeah, I think the other reason that people are giddy is that they're a fun team, like fun on the pitch, fun off the pitch in a way that previous teams weren't. So they're playing fun rugby, but they're also giving you a kind of permission to enjoy it as well. It's not po-faced, it's not serious. And, um, you know, they themselves even make that comparison. You know, when you listen to Peter O'Mahony talking about the Ireland camp, you genuinely, like, kind of want to be there. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, that actually sounds like really fun and not just hard work and, like, getting in trouble and watching analysis. And so I think that gives permission. Like, there's the theme across the papers is that you have to be really, really good to win a Grand Slam and therefore they're, they're rare. But, you know, over the last few years, we've been told that like bad Wales teams have won Grand Slam. So we, we do have to check ourselves a little bit with like how we talk about ourselves after an achievement like this. You know, the the, champ- the the championship wasn't great. The standard wasn't great this year. So like you have to, you know, couch the achievement in that too. I yes. think I can understand why the French camp are saying we're still the team to beat after the Six Nations. Because their feeling is they went to Dublin, went toe-to-toe with this Ireland team, sorted themselves out afterwards, hammered England at Twickenham and they're going into a home World Cup now probably feeling, you know what, let Ireland get hyped up about what's just happened. But they were as good in the Six Nations as Ireland were. Yeah, like one of the massive things you have to remember about the Six Nations is home and away makes a huge difference. So whatever year that, you know, we get France in Dublin is going to be a big deal. So like when we're going to the World Cup, but in saying that, but this is the ideal Six Nations and f- the way it has panned out for Ireland to have gone into a World Cup. So instead of being very hyper about like, this is the perfect team, we can do it. Like when we get there, they've had to 
you know, tweak things. They've had to figure out things along the way. So like, you know, Scotland probably is what a quarterfinal would look like. A lot of attrition, a lot of people missing, figuring out how to play players in positions that they're not used to. And then the England, this game was kind of like a semi-final because the nerves were palpable. Like, And it looked like, okay, five minutes of nerves and we'll get over it. And it was like 20 minutes. Oh, they're still nervous. <laughs> yeah. But that's what a semi-final is going to be if we get there in the World Cup. So for me, there was lots of kind of good things that like this is actually good preparation for a World Cup. This is stuff that we're actually learning from that, you know, going into a semi-final, the nerves of a semi-final in World Cup will be like that. So I think there was a little bit of dress rehearsal going on even though there probably wouldn't be an admission of that but it's also nice to hear them talking about the World Cup you know a few years ago they would have been like you know they come out and say we just focus on the next game yada yada like like stuff that In 2019 it genuinely felt like it was a dirty word yeah. you couldn't talk about it we had to focus on the next thing that was going to happen along the journey towards the World Cup and there, there's something very I'll tell you one thing that felt very different just to take up your point about them feeling a bit more relaxed in the environment that they want to be in Steve Bortwick answered two questions for Owen Farrell, the England captain, in his press conference yesterday, even when he was asked about his dad. It was fairly lighthearted stuff, you know. What's it like coming up against your dad? You know, you saw your son was there with your dad at training on Friday. And Bortwick st- kind of stand- stands in. While Mac Hansen, who was incredibly loose a week ago in his comments, <laughs> about England, I think loose is the fair word to use. And even like James Lowe, who's pretty loose when he's put out in front of the media. Mac Hansen, again, was put out to speak to the media last night. Yeah. I think in the Joe Schmidt era, he would have thought, after those England comments and everyone hating England, let's just put him on the back burner for a little while and not have him back out. They put Matt Hansen out straight in front of the media last night and again, he's given them great headlines and great quotes. So yeah. obviously, Andy Farrell trusts them. Yeah, well, the, diff- the difference is that Joe Schmidt would probably be listening to this show and listening to every piece of media or reading it or consuming it in some way that would have come out in the aftermath of this game and would have anticipated maybe that somebody who is as much a free spirit as Hansen might put their foot in the mouth or create a controversy out of nothing. Now, I think Hansen's comments about England and all of that sort of stuff were taken um, in the spirit that they were intended by most people. Even English people I spoke with were like, well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of what you guys think of us anyway, right? Like, in a, in a jovial sort it, it of a way, get, it's, it, not th- it's not that serious. The first things media, they didn't amplify it. No, they didn't. And I was a little bit surprised by that, to be, to be totally honest, but credit to them. Maybe they felt as though in this sort of era or this climate that it wouldn't be as headline-grabbing as maybe in the past. But I think with Farrell, a massive thing that he's cultivated in this squad is um, for everybody to be able to portray their personality to actually let that out even within a squad environment so like if you look at how close this team is and they're they're speaking of it in terms of it becoming cliche at this point that they're like a brotherhood so to speak and that's a really difficult thing to actually uh, cultivate within a squad like they're, they're speaking about it uh, in in terms of it being the key to their success and we take it for granted because you presume well these players are training together they're playing together they know each other very well I mean how you know two-thirds of them are from Leinster to begin with so they're working together on a daily basis but like if you zoom in on that like some of the players live together some of the guys who are like 25 26 literally live in the same house like they're best buddies and equally the the sort of um the boundaries that may have existed in the past between provinces where you're only meeting up for Ireland camp and yeah, sure, you'll get on well with the, the Leinster guys or the Monster guys or whatever it is. Like those boundaries are, are now completely blurred. Like this feels like an Ireland team in which uh, the players from 
regardless of where they're from, are genuinely really good friends. And when you're in the trenches, as they were yesterday against England, that's a very valuable trait to have, to be playing alongside your friends. They continuously cite it, and with good reason, because if you look to your left and to your right and you see guys who you genuinely care about and you want to go to the well for, whatever, about the 50,000 fans in the stadium and the 7 million people on the island, like you're going to go the extra inch because you want to make sure the other guy gets over the line. And that's a very... Um, Again, it's a sort of a dangerous thing for if you were from another country looking at this, I would look at this Ireland team as being like the most united sort of squad we've seen within an Irish rugby context. And it gives them an extra couple of percent where uh, when the you know what hits the fan, they're typically able to overcome any obstacles that... Uh, that they're faced with. The other thing I, with the kind of person putting it, the personalities out there and Farrell allowing that to happen like he did speak before the match about rugby being the fourth sport and you know needing rugby to have a place in Ireland that is bigger than it currently is so that was a bit of realism that maybe isn't in the papers today but you know you need personalities to make your sport count so you know there's probably a bit of that thinking but for me like Hansen and, and Lowe are the magic off the pitch for, the, for you know the quotes and, and the fun but they're the magic on the pitch as well. It's one of the problems in my marriage because I'm married to a very, very dedicated monster man and I just love watching James Lowe play. So every time he does something a bit magic, I'm like pointing at the screen excitedly and like my husband's like rolling his <laughs> eyes at me. <laughs> but it, even like I think with Lowe, you see the progression like around 25 minutes in yesterday, he got into a really bad position, got passed, but then did almighty work and then put in a superb tackle. Like low three years ago was not doing that. So like, but he's still getting his positioning wrong. So there's still improvement. So that's what you're saying, Gav. There's still stuff to work on, even though they've won a slam. Like that's, that's brilliant. And you know now that Farrell's getting that out of him because his work rate has improved unbelievably his tackling has improved unbelievably and he's still able to bring the magic so it's not like a Schmidt thing where you've kind of bounced all the good stuff out to get the the discipline in there's some kind of formula that Farrell has that is getting all of that out of him so sorry Lorcan for that excited uh, (laughs) (laughs) pitch for James Lowe I'll I'll (laughs) apologise again to Lorcan because I'll continue to wax lyrical about Lowe but like what amazes me about James Lowe and the way he's played in this championship and the way he's played for the last probably eight or nine months is the fact that like in the preseason to this campaign, as in the, the season in general, not just the Six Nations, he flagged it publicly how hard he had been working on his defence, how hard he had been working on getting those reads right. Uh, he had done an enormous amount of research in his own time in order to improve that aspect of his game. It wasn't as a response to the fact that it was a stick with which uh, people typically beat him. It was more so he wanted to be integral to this Ireland team. Uh, he, you know, he's fond of the guys he's playing with just as much as the rest of them and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to let them down when it came to games like yesterday. And like as Sinead points out, absolutely justifiably, is defensive play has improved to an enormous extent and still he'll get a few things wrong because he's that a, happened yesterday Some, yeah. many of the 15 handling errors were actually down on James Lowe yeah 100% his offloads didn't work but he keeps trying it and he reminds me of a, little, a little bit in attack he reminds me a little bit of Bruno Fernandes insofar as maybe two or three of his offloads per game aren't going to find their mark but he's the guy who has to do it he's the guy who makes Ireland tick in that regard very few players will even be able to get themselves free to the same extent as he does in order to throw an offload in order to uh, continue a move and like 
he will always try it. And I guess, I mean, I'd guess from watching him over the last couple of years in an Irish jersey, he's been given that license, which is if, it, if the ball goes to the ground, no panic. We need you to do this. Don't worry about the stats, the offload stats, all of that sort of stuff. Like, this is your role in the team. You are the catalyst in our attack. Uh, you're going to be the, the, the spark. And if you don't execute absolutely 100% accurately don't panic you'll get it next time but keep doing it is the point it's like what the Dublin footballers say like uh, that they were only allowed to take shots if it, if it was in their if it was in their percentages so like with him the offloads are probably always within his gift so mm. he gets away with being allowed to try it because actually the next time it, it, would, it will pay off or it will work and it's worth pointing out as well we're, we're speaking about two guys in Hansen and Lowe who are imports for want of a better term like Hansen is half Corkonian as I keep reminding people uh, <laughs> and I keep getting flack for but like obviously he grew up in Australia now uh, granted he sort of grew up an Ireland fan or at least uh, adjacent to uh, an Irish support in it's that It's a few years ago he is serving beers in Canberra, in Canberra and now here he is it's, it's a national star an absolutely unbelievable rise and that's a conversation worth having in its own right but I think we're speaking about two guys who for all of the talk of uh project players and that sort of thing and for all of the column inches that have been dedicated to that topic over the last few years uh, and for all of the criticism Ireland have received for fielding so many players or even relying upon players that didn't come through the Irish system we're speaking about a team and it's like ability and two of the names that uh, are at the forefront of that conversation are, are two of the names that Irish rugby has brought into this country and brought into the game. Obviously, Mac Hansen was qualified to play for Ireland regardless. I'm not questioning that. Lowe was a, a project player for want of a better term, but they're two guys who have added an enormous amount just through their character, uh, through their love for the game. They're also raised, coached in a different game to a lot of the, the, to the way that the Irish players would have been raised in the sense that like from day dot in Australia and New Zealand, they were encouraged to do the things that they're doing now, which we are seeing as like uh, almost a, a secret weapon for Ireland. Like that's just their natural game. We're lucky to have them. And I also like the fact that their legacy as players for Ireland will live on insofar as regardless of what happens on the pitch uh, from now on, their personalities, their post-match interviews, all of the colour that they've added to the equation will hopefully be carried on even by Irish players because they won't be afraid to show the personalities the way that the boys have. Yeah, like I think Sexton looking the happiest and most relaxed he's ever looked yesterday is part of that story as well. Like this is Sexton's team, right? But Sexton's team would look very different if you weren't allowed this lightheartedness around it because he's not a lighthearted dude. No, <laughs> like, he's not. But by his own admission, like he, he lost the plot with how angry he got in France a couple of years ago. He said that was a real kind of low point of his captaincy, but he seems a much more relaxed guy. Even all week this week, he was remarkably relaxed. The record was there to be taken. Grand Slam, which he's spoken openly, but he wants to captain Ireland to honours and Leinster to honours before he retires at the end of the year. But Sexton seemed the calmest guy in the room all week. Yeah, and like something that's always got my goat about Sexton is he's always given out to others after he makes a mistake but actually there was none of that yesterday he made a couple of mistakes and put his hand up and I was like oh who's this new the, the kick, <laughs> who's this new the person especially that skewed off his foot yeah, yeah. normally that would have been a huff from Sexton but he kind of went right sorry put the thumb up yeah and that's down. really really rare so again there's like something happening there that's a bit unusual there's progression being made so it's very much still Sexton's team so I think that the talk of who's the number two really doesn't matter but also what feels like doesn't matter as much anymore is not all the play goes through him so even though yeah. it absolutely is necessary for him to be there, it's 
it's more about his presence rather than his play which hopefully if he's not there then like it doesn't really matter who the substitute is that they'll figure it out I've heard, I've heard people whispering that because Saxon is now 37 that his influence on the team is waning because naturally athletically he is declining which is totally understandable <laughs> at his age and given not only at his age because that's almost arbitrary but because of the mileage he has on the clock because of the number of times he's gone to the well because of the number of times he's put his body on the line but I actually disagree with that like I don't see him as being a poorer athlete than he was say 18 months ago what I see though is a team that has taken some of the weight off his shoulders in the way that they play and quite deliberately I would imagine Mike Cat and Andy Farrell have almost like decentralised Sexton in, mm. in how they go about things. So like absolutely he remains integral, but it becomes more manageable now if he's not there because of the way Ireland are capable of playing. And that includes, say, their midfield partnership. It includes Hugo Keenan, who has worked an enormous amount on his just general playmaking ability. Like three years ago, when Hugo Keenan first came on the scene for Leinster, I would have said like a, a massive weakness in his game was not an inability to pass obviously you can pass when you get to that level of, of the sport but he tended to go for it a lot yeah and, decision and, making uh, it was decision making but equally like just his, his actual skill levels in terms of his passing I, I would have said were subpar for a modern day fullback you look at him last week for example where he puts Mac Hansen in in the corner that's, that's a, lo- a left to right pass that's a left handed pass he's a right handed right footed player like anybody who plays rugby will tell you how difficult that is anybody who's played rugby at that level of the game will tell you how difficult it is to do it in that in those circumstances and Keane had just got it spotlessly done and I look at him as somebody who has taken a little bit of uh, a little bit of the pressure off Sexton's shoulders in the sense that if you need him to be Hugo Keenan could be your second playmaker equally Robbie Henshaw Gary Ringrose all of these sorts of players so I don't know I, I disagree strongly with anybody who suggests that Sexton isn't the player he was even 18 months ago I think Sexton will remain one of the best out halves in the game until he walks away from it I'd be interested to know if that's going to be after the World Cup or not to be <laughs> honest Well Bundy Aki was uh, <laughs> making that point when he was interviewed last night he said look guy's 38 this summer probably he's not at 18 months <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sexton's joking about playing for Mary's next year. There yeah. was one point because we've talked a lot about uh, Farrell's affability and like but he didn't look happy after Ross Byrne missed that kick actually and I was thinking oh like the, the game was won but obviously he's still thinking ahead and I didn't think that that was going to be kickable when you're coming on cold like that and it wasn't an easy kick but Andy Farrell did look kind of like oh that's something to think about now obviously I'm reading yeah, a lot into yeah. facial think, expressions and, but and, and, and maybe, that, maybe that, thinking Ross Byrne came on cold against Australia made the kick that's the standard you <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 but you know what it, knowing Farrell a little bit just based on what we've heard from him publicly I mean He's probably thinking, I'm disappointed for Ross that he didn't make it. Maybe. Because Johnny had nailed his lines, you know, every time. What was he, four out of four from the tee? And uh, he probably would have liked to have seen Ross just come on and continue that. Obviously, it was, it was sort of irrelevant in the circumstances at the time. But um, he might have just been disappointed for Ross rather than disappointed in him. Because yeah. you know? the, actually the atmosphere, one of the things we were talking about ahead of the match was, what, is the atmosphere going to be good enough? Like the Aviva and the rugby crowd is not always <laughs> like a given. Um, but the atmosphere was there as well yesterday, which was really, really good to see um, and good to hear. I wasn't at the match, but I lived down the road. So like a lot <laughs> of the time you just don't hear the rugby. Like I'm going to guess you heard all the music beforehand. This is a really good <laughs> bear of mine. So oh even during God. the pandemic, 
I covered a few games for here. I think Dundalk against KI in a qualifier for the Europa League and also Leinster Saracens. There was no crowd because there were no crowds allowed at the time and yet the PA was still on about 12 <laughs> at the time. I actually fell for the Virgin Media crew because ITV had a studio in the corner of the stadium so it was all kind of blocked out. But the poor Virgin Media crew were trying to build up to the game yesterday and they were just being drowned, drowned out, out by the sound mm. of the And then the song choice afterwards was terrible. Oh, shocking. Uh, shocking. It's a massive then. Well, it, it feels like, like the darts, obviously, but... Yeah, but I mean, like, how do you not... I suppose I'd be thinking of, say, when Limerick ended their All-Ireland famine and you, you put on the cranberries, and it, it is this magical, spine-tingling moment, like hearing dreams come on, and it's it's relevant to the team that's just won. And Ireland's song, when they won their first Grand Slam at home since 1948, the first one ever in Dublin, was Freed from Desire. I was there listening to it, and I'm thinking, <laughs> firstly... How does anybody think that song is still relevant, even culturally? Like, it had its moment in 2016. It came back with Will Grigg and the Euros and all of that sort of stuff. But, like, it was absolutely... I was baffled. Like, how do you not go for an Irish tune in that circumstance? And then the funny thing is, like, a couple of songs later, they go to the fields of Athenry and you think, okay, that makes sense. But it was in the middle of the crowd already singing Ole, Ole, Ole. And that was just picking up. So it interrupted what was an organic sort of a... A piece of atmosphere in the stands. Uh, listen, the, the PA system in the Aviva, I, I could write 2,000 words on it, in all honesty. It, it annoys me He's week on week. Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's probably not one, like it's completely subjective. They're just songs, whatever. But it feels so artificial. It feels so forced. And as Sinead said, as Sinead says, the atmosphere yesterday was like vastly superior even to the France game. I think part of it, to be totally honest, was because 90% of the crowd were from Ireland. Like yeah. the France game, I'd say genuinely 25-30% of the people there were French and they were out for blood. Um, yesterday, I guess the English didn't have the faith in, in their team necessarily to to travel or even You're, some of the... When your team shifts 50 points and yeah. looking at 400, 500 euro for a hotel room, they probably 100%, 100%. And but it, it helped from an Irish point of view. The atmosphere was absolutely electric. Those last three minutes where the entire stadium was singing The Fields of Athenry. It was probably the longest rendition of it that I've ever heard. Usually, you know, you get a couple of choruses in and it dies off and whatever. This time there was a, it seemed like there was a real intent, almost a realisation on behalf of 50,000 people that this is the culmination of a journey so far. Let's absolutely lap up this moment as fans, as players, as an Irish rugby public. And that was genuinely spine tingling when the the flags came out as well. It just felt like I guess it was almost the antithesis of Euro 2012, the, the the moment in which, well, the moment that Roy Keane gave out about after the 4-0 hammering by Spain, where the Irish fans, in defiance, sort of continued to sing the fields of Athen right, which I also thought was a wonderful moment. I disagree with Keane on that, but this was one where we have cause for celebration here. This is a, an amazing <coughs> moment. We're as a as a sporting public, as a as a people on this island, we're. we're witnessing something that the vast, vast, vast majority of people haven't seen in this country before. Only the survivors from 1948 or, or the people who were there in Ravenhill that day have seen it. Oh, it was amazing. There was a few of them who were actually there. there was a yeah, it, oh, amazing. A guy who was there in 48, so to have been able to experience both must be amazing to be home for the two uh, Grand Slams, nearly 100 years between them. Uh, I was thinking on the atmosphere point, I wonder if the nature of the game helped as well, that it built kind of naturally. First half was nervy and understandably you could kind of feel it in the crowd when England kept getting penalties and you're thinking, is this one of these days where the pressure becomes too much? 
much. And then after Sheehan's first try, it just started to kind of naturally build up after that. Yeah, I think people were like, oh no, this is going to be fine. We will win this, but it's not going to be a cakewalk. So like we actually do need to participate as well. So I think that's part of probably the criticism of, about the rugby crowd. Sometimes they don't participate in a way like, um, you know, Ronan Garrett giving out to the La Rochelle crowd being like, we needed you. Like, you know, I'm used to this monster thing. Like we need the crowd to be there. So um, there probably was a sense of that. Um, but then also that sense of relief of like, okay, it's an evening match. We can actually celebrate a bit now as well, like, and just w- enjoy watching these great players. Um, Eamon Sweeney, while also claiming that um, this is the best Irish team ever of all time in anything, also talks about the viewing figures and talks like that the, the viewing figures for the rugby are, you know, high in 2021. The most watched Ireland soccer game in the World Cup qualifiers drew fewer viewers than the least watched Six Nations match. So he says rugby is where it's at now. Um, I do want, like, I do wonder how much this team and this sport captures the imagination more widely. Like it is extremely Leinster. <laughs> it's an extremely Leinster team. It's an extremely Leinster squad. Um, I do wonder how representative it feels. Like there's a, a, a piece in Bernard Jackman talks about the RFU deserving huge credit for the money they have invested in the professional game. Money has been spent in the book loads by many unions, but the RFU have a great strategy and lots of great people delivering that plan. But like it kind of like there's a bit of a jarring moment then he he then goes on to talk about Leinster School's uh, Senior Cup and Gonzaga beating Black Rock so I'm kind of thinking well did you read those two paragraphs together because a lot of the money being pumped in is private school money being pumped in in South Dublin and very much in a small enclave so um, not to be a Debbie Downer but you know I yeah. do think there's a conversation around that as well to to be talked through Andy Farrell obviously likes the cohesion that just picking loads of Leinster players brings um, but you know is there something to be said for for a few squad players to make it feel yeah. more like an Irish team I, I think on that on that point if you look back on say Munster Leinster games this season so far it's very difficult to for the Irish coaches to be able to justify bringing in, say, one of the monster back rows over uh, Scott Penny, like he was the lightning rod a couple of weeks ago. Thanks for bringing back Coombs versus Penny again, right? But but like if you look at if you look at say Leinster beating Monster at Thomond Park around Christmas time, the Leinster back row won their individual battles. How do you justify to a Leinster player, for example, that we're bringing in a monster guy in the interests of? representation when you actually battered him on the day when you faced him and to be honest like Leinster are I mean by far and away the best team in the country possibly the best club team in the world right now the cohesion as Sinead says is a massive thing but equally if you were to look at some of the toss-ups selection uh, selection wise a lot of those Leinster players have just been better on the day than their Munster or Connacht or Ulster counterparts the results speak for themselves Leinster are unbeaten this season I, I absolutely accept your point Sinead about um, the idea that it, it probably does need to feel a little bit more diverse within a, a provincial context eventually I don't think it's a problem now I do think it could be a problem for absolute certainty I think it could be a problem say further down the line if it continues that 80% of an Irish squad or whatever is uh, Leinster focused it's equally a problem in the, in the women's game right where was it ninety five percent of the, the squad at the moment are, are either based in, in Dublin or in England, but it is the path that the IRFU have deliberately chosen. Like their pathway to elite rugby is predominantly through the Leinster school system. 
it's up to the school systems, I guess, and also the club systems, obviously, and the other provinces to try and catch up with that. It's very difficult to do without the capital that, uh, say, Atlongo's, Michael's, Blackrock, sort of an ecosystem has. You can look at some of the Cork schools, Christians and Prayers, say, are doing their best, their fee-paying schools. But then the Limerick schools within that competition are looking at the Cork schools and saying, how are we supposed to compete with them when we don't charge fees? So, like, it's, it's not an even playing field between Leinster and Munster and Connacht and Ulster but equally I mean, even like within some of those provinces Some of the best athletes in Limerick now are going more towards hurling and understandably being attracted towards that when a decision has to be made in your mid-teens as to which sport to play And I think a massive one to be honest is a fullback who plays for Prez who just won the Munster School Senior Cup Ben O'Connor who's a Cork uh, minor All-Ireland hurling winning captain from a couple of years ago played in midfield as the Bars won their first county in God knows how many years, I can't remember now, uh, but played fullback for Prez and like he was outstanding in the Monster School Senior Cup. But I'd be very interested to see which way he goes even. He's not even from Limerick, but it's one of those situations where GA still has that like, you know, sort of guttural appeal to people who've grown up within it. And maybe the the um, the opportunity to play rugby professionally isn't actually as... I don't know, sacrosanct or, or as appealing as you might think it to be because it's a long and awful road and it doesn't work out for everybody and suddenly you're 25, 26, you could be finished up and you don't really have other prospects outside of it whereas at least within GA you can still build a career adjacent to it. So, um, yeah, I, like the best Irish team to ever play sport in this country or whatever but like also still a pretty... What's the word I'm looking for? I guess it's a it's a... Uh, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for like it's a job that it's a job that has its downsides as well uh, and just won't be for everybody No no and I mean look you look at Alan Tynan now playing hurling for Tipperary at the moment you mentioned Ben O'Connor these guys who were tipped to do really well in rugby and yet have gone back to Gaelic games which yeah. kind of maybe Sinead in a way brings us nicely round uh, to what's been written about uh, particularly in the Independent Nadine Doherty's got a piece about today about the way that maybe the recruitment in the women's game is slowly but surely changing as well where once upon a time not that long ago and even the current Irish rugby team there are lots of players who were recruited from other sports like I even think of uh, Nicola Friday the current Irish women's rugby captain didn't touch a rugby ball until she went to college and that was true probably of a lot of the players who are currently in the squad now they're developing them in a slightly different way and it's no longer about looking for say top Gaelic games athletes and trying to turn them into rugby players they're now bringing rugby players from the bottom up Yeah so there's two pieces in the Sunday Independent and from very different uh, on the the scale of pessimism to optimism so Nadine Doherty is you know talking from a ladies football background and saying you know it's great for rugby it's a great sign for rugby that they don't need to come to the LGFA and poach um, players that have grown up in their structure and like know how to look after themselves and know how to be fit and like you know get that speed and all of that so she and she's saying now the problem the LGFA have a new problem it's not rugby anymore it's AFLW and two players have gone today signed up so that's from the LGFA perspective but John Cronin in in what is going to be a two-part series looks at the women's rugby in Ireland and the deep, deep, deep trouble it's in. So when when you read Nadine Doherty and then read John Cronin, you're thinking, you know, are LGFA not getting getting plundered by rugby because people just don't want to go to rugby? Like there's there's nothing there for them. Like it's it's in deep, deep state of disarray, and the IRFU have shown no signs of 
particularly caring that it is. Even on a very small thing, so just over your shoulder at the moment is the Grand Slam winning team from 10 years ago and the muck and the dirt just outside Milan uh, when they won that historic Grand Slam. And Fiona Hayes, regular contributor here, had tweeted during the week just kind of saying, hey guys, 10 years this week since we won the Grand Slam, any chance we could just get a ticket? Not saying we get paraded, not saying that we get a corporate box, just let's come along to the game at the weekend and be there while the men go and win the first Grand Slam in Dublin. And the fact that their achievement is, I won't say totally forgotten about, but kind of sidelined to an extent, maybe sums this up to a certain extent where it's, oh, wow, you know, Grand Slams, lads are doing great, they're going to the World Cup, and women's rugby is very much down the totem pole. Yeah, like it, it, they couldn't have paraded them yesterday because it would have highlighted how badly they handled winning 10 years ago because instead of capitalising on such a huge, huge achievement and having those brains of rugby on that team, you know, some of the best brains of rugby that you guys use and hear from all the time in the media, that they haven't, they haven't utilised any of that. They didn't, there was no legacy from that at all, which is such a pity when you see the people that they had at their disposal. So the RFU couldn't have prayed in them yesterday because it would have been embarrassing shining a light on on what has happened in the 10 years since. Uh, John Cronin writes about how everything has been about centralisation and contracts. But, you know, the contracts are, what, 15 grand a year? Like, you know, and like nothing nothing that they have done will move the needle, basically. And um, like the, the, the conversation about contracts that led to those contracts being offered... Everybody in, uh, I felt as though most people in the general public were sort of curious as to why, say, the Irish women's team were demanding professionalisation or professional contracts when, like, they weren't actually up to scratch, say, in I'd in say watch the Six Nations and see why. R- right. But <laughs> they weren't really demanding that. Like, what they wanted was just more alignment, a better pathway, a better domestic structure, a more, chance to actually be to good, yeah. a chance to get to a point where they could ask for contracts justifiably. Mm. And like, if you look at the number of players who've actually taken up those contracts because they are pretty, you know, puny in the grand scheme of things, like it's it's quite minimal. It was it was never really about contracts, but the IRFU dashed to what they felt would be um, the easiest way to sort of massage the situation or be seen to do the right thing. Let's also, get contracts straight away. It also in a way takes away the argument that many of us would have made when they go, oh look, all these English, French and Welsh players have now got contracts. Well actually we've handed out this money. Yeah. But when you dig down into the detail, how many of those players were already on the Sevens programme mm-hmm. and were just extending their deals? And the vast majority of the really top players on the Irish team decided not to come back from England. I think exactly. that was the yeah. real kind of telling point was that they weren't giving up their contract at English clubs to come back for an Irish one. Yeah, Sinead makes the point that they have been caught napping for the last decade. The problem with that is you lose, like you've spent 10 years doing virtually nothing. I mean as an institution now, because there have been obviously so many people within the game who have operated in a voluntary capacity for the betterment of women's rugby. I'm obviously not talking about them. I mean from the... At the very top level, women's rugby has been an afterthought, an inconvenience, like the problem child, really, of rugby generally Especially speaking. Especially you look at the AIL and the one-sided games that are there and, yeah. you know, central Irish players being moved from their clubs to two or three super clubs and yeah. therefore creating a complete imbalance as well. But if, if you lose those, like they have lost those 10 years in terms of having that pathway in place, it actually equates to more than 10 years. Mm. That's the problem because you have... Countries basically, well, you have two countries at least in the Northern Hemisphere who have used that decade since Ireland won that slam to create an infrastructure through which they're producing a conveyor belt of players. It's not just one squad now that's coming through there. It's underage squads. It's players that can slot in at at various ages, at various stages of their careers. So there's like there's depth 
to both the English and French squads, which which is non-existent in Ireland. Like other moment. other countries captured the moment, and and Ireland just didn't. Like Ireland, the IRFU didn't understand the wider landscape of women's sport, like from a business perspective. Just and still seem to have not understood that, or else thought, well, we've missed the moment now, so we'd just be pouring bad money after after bad. But. Um, One of the points that John Cronin makes, which I think is a really important one when you're talking about the women's game, is that you have to look at women's rugby as its own entity. The RFU can't just like treat it like men's light. You can't just say, okay, this is how we would do it if we had less money with the men. We just do it this way or this is, you know, that's how you end up with, you know, sevens teams that don't capture the imagination is Cronin's point. And then they're trying to do the exact same thing now with the 15s. But it doesn't work. You can't just do the same thing for the women's game as you do for the men with less resources. So you have to think differently. And one of the things he points out to when he brings coaches on for the first time, he says, how would you coach women's rugby if you had never seen a game of men's rugby? Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what we always talk about when we say women's games are worth watching and someone says, you know, well, they're not as fast as men and they're not as strong as men. You're like, why the comparison? There will yeah. be things that you will pick up on that are different mm. and in some ways better because the games are different. So it would make sense then that the approach has to be different. Like things like contracts will have to be different because, you know, maternity, as much as we would love paternity leave to be as like important, things like maternity leave will have to be thought about. So the whole thing will will just look different. Um and yeah, it it feels like just talking into like a black yeah. hole because um, it's you know it it feels like there are a few like you know and I think that that point about them not even being invited yesterday just kind of shows the the level of care and it's a competitive field now like look at you know women can play football here and then go to Australia and play in a semi-professional manner for half the year or three quarters of the year. And, and the contracts are worth more the than contracts, the contracts. Uh, yeah, so, you know, it's a, it's a competitive field now. The, the, the FAI are doing some good stuff with women's football. You know, there's going to be a huge year for uh, young girls and young boys watching football for the year. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a competitive field and that's not even bringing in the head stuff like that parents are looking at when they're deciding where to send their girls. So, Just one, one thing I want to touch on, Gavin, before we go to the break is Brendan Fanning's piece and the final of the kind of rugby sweep. And he's making the point, and this debate comes up all the time, that the RFU possibly now have to look at a partnership with an outside body to try and give an avenue for some of these young players to play because many of us who were watching in their 20s last week demolished Scotland they got a chance for back-to-back Grand Slam success here tremendous amount of players are coming through there's only a certain amount of space in the provinces um, Brendan's making the point that some of the star players in this 20s team have already toured with the Irish emerging team so there's very clearly a little bit of a that's a, a gap of opportunity that's there for these players who seem primed and ready to play men's rugby now I'm sure London Irish would probably become the argument again um, but maybe at a time when the Welsh teams are in trouble is there an argument for the RFU now to look outside and try and create another avenue for these players to stay semi within the system while getting a chance to play elsewhere I think there's a strong argument for it I don't think it will actually happen and I think the alternative is just to actually encourage younger players to move abroad for a couple of years maybe tried to manufacture contracts or deals in which you come back at a certain point or almost like a two-year loan deal or something along those lines. Now, Jack Crowley has emerged at Munster over the course of this season. He's obviously part of the Ireland squad, but Ronald O'Gara was looking to take him to La Rochelle a couple of years ago because he saw the potential in Crowley and he also realised that he wasn't getting any game time really under Johan van Graan. He was probably third in the pecking order at best at that time. And to be totally honest, if... 
Crowley had gone to La Rochelle for a couple of years. Now, granted, Rodge would have probably tried to keep him. If he'd come back to Munster, you know, he might be an even better player than he is now, just by by dint of the fact that he would have played more rugby. That's Munster's situation. You look at Leinster's out-half situation, we're only talking about one position. They probably have five guys there that are vying for that spot, even when Johnny Sexton walks away from it. Sam Prendergast in the Ireland 20s looks to be the real deal, but for the last two and a half years we've probably spoken about Harry Byrne Harry as being Byrne the, the real deal two years ago yeah yeah, and, and still does by the way when he gets his opportunities also like Ross Byrne's resurgence is, is sort of career renaissance within an Irish context Foley wants to play a 10 Kieran Foley is back fit um, I mean you you also have players like Charlie Tector there who's a very good player like it's insane the depth they have at that position I think we're actually mainly talking about Leinster here, to be totally honest. I know I brought up Crowley, but like it's usually Leinster who have a depth chart in each position of probably four or five players that are vying for game time in the same uh, spot. Now, Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster have done an unbelievable job, actually, of managing that over the last few years and ensuring that guys actually do get the minutes somehow. Um, but what I would say is it's difficult to make the case to any of those Leinster players that you should leave whether it's to a Connacht or an Ulster or a Munster or I mean you're probably not going to go abroad because you're out of contention then for Ireland selection because they're part of an unbelievable team environment and a winning team environment they're getting well paid well looked after Uh, similar to what we were saying about Ireland at the top they're friendly with each other their friends and family are here, they're from here. And it's like, why would you leave? It's yeah. also the pathway. Like, And yeah. uh, this goes back to, to my point earlier of like, rugby is kind of becoming a Leinster, like that's, that's where it's at. So their pathway has always been do well in school, like get into the academy, do well in the academy, get onto the Leinster team. So that that's the pathway they'd, they didn't envision anything else. So if and and they've got through the academy and they've got onto the squad. So you know they're, they're kind of where they want to be. Yeah. You know. And so. and and to go back to a conversation we're having about Ireland being a little bit Leinster dominated. Like if you have say Scott Penny being called up to the national squad, having played what was it like an hour of Champions Cup rugby or something like that for Leinster. Again, why would you leave? But. Going back to your problem about this might eventually become a problem. Like it's obviously not a problem now, and you know it, it's it's working for Ireland. But if you look at the Joey Carberry example, like there's probably a good few people in Leinster being like, "Well, I don't want I don't want that to happen." Where I'm kind of always the nearly man, and then you're judged on a much. So one of the reasons why I think that the squad thing isn't like I disagree with you a little bit, Gav, about like if a Leinster player beats a Munster player on a you know a Leinster Munster match, therefore they deserve it. I, I disagree with that slightly because I think the bar is always different because there's so much visibility on the Leinster squad. Um the bar is always a little bit different. Like when you, you see how Ross Byrne gets uh kind of um assessed after a game compared to how Joey Carberry gets assessed after a game is vastly different um, and I think that is because of kind of that familiarity with, with the Leinster um, set up and the winning ways and Lancaster and Cullen and all of that so I do think eventually it will become a problem because probably people will look at Joey Carberry and go well actually you go to Munster you're playing at a lesser team and then you you get dropped from Ireland because the yeah. expectation is higher on you than yeah. it is on yeah. Ross you're, Byrne. You're if you're in goal. Leinster, you just you get the you get the ticket. You, you know, Ty Byrne as opposed to looking at Joey Carberry as a route back round, where he had to leave Leinster, or go abroad, yeah. and yeah. becomes a star player then for Munster. And so that goes to your point of going abroad, like yeah, go abroad. Yeah, and, and like it, it's finding a way to encourage guys who are part of that bottleneck in any given position 
to go there and, and assure them that there there is a pathway back here. Like yeah. even if it's if it's guaranteed in the contract or otherwise, like we won't forget about you. Like I don't know that it would make sense at the moment to uh, lift what is ostensibly a ban, obviously, on players playing abroad representing uh, the national team. That is a decision that's been made in the best interests of the provinces and just keeping our best talent here. Right? Yeah. There has been one exception ever, and it was Johnny Sexton. Um, that won't change. But if you could make the case to a twenty-one-year-old or twenty-two-year-old, if you go and play championship in England maybe not at the moment to be totally honest but premiership in England or go to Pro D2 in France or or play even a, at a lower tier top 14 team like we will con- we will stay in touch with you you will you will still remain yeah. part of the system because that that is within the auspices of the IRFU and and like it is a remarkable system that they have it's up to them really as to whether or not they retain contact and and continue to assess a player whether while they're abroad and I would just make the case that, like, rather than having to seize control of a London Irish or um, invest to that extent in a, uh, an organisation outside of the IRFU or outside of this country, encourage lads to go and spread their wings and, and see what comes back. On the long term approach then of that, like I've heard Shane Horgan and Andrew Trimble a couple of times on the second captains talking about the personality of the Leinster schools player being a bit too uniform and mm. that in the long run, that's bad as well. So a few years, like you, obviously you're not going to change that whole system, but yep. a few years abroad for some of those people is probably not a bad thing. So probably long term, that that's not a bad approach either. Yeah. Look at what we're saying about Mac Hansen exactly. and James Lowe, yeah. right? Yeah. Just go spread your wings and, you know, figure out who you are as a person and you probably come back a Carlos Spencer type with uh, <laughs> checking the book Andy's done that point really well if you listen back to the podcast a couple of weeks ago where he talked about when he came back to play club rugby in Ireland he noticed some of the lads coming out of the academy in Leinster they maybe didn't quite make it they were very polished young men but they were all playing in a very specific style and they weren't able to play maybe the off the cuff that was required a club because they were programmed to play in a certain way So Yeah and Eddie Jones has talked about that recently <laughs> I as say, well It was England's downfall right? Uh, yeah and, and, and he talked about the idea of teachers not being coaches anymore and like coaches coaching like young lads like instead of teachers doing it so that kind of you know yeah it it makes them super disciplined and ready for academies but maybe not ready to you know play on an Eddie Jones team (laughs) Well you look at some of the guys in the Ireland team now even and say somebody like a a Tyke Byrne or some of the people who have taken a scenic route and Tyke Furlong obviously he's come through Leinster but I'm talking about people basically from outside of the Pale or outside of Cork or the Strongholds like they remain some of Ireland's most important players and I loved uh, Ryan Baird. I was just about to say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like just talking about that that turnover he made on the fifth in the fifty eighth minute. I hope this wasn't embargoed. Is this? Have you heard? No, this? no, no, yeah, no. no. I've okay. read okay. it. So, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, it, it was. I wasn't on the pitch. I think he made the comment on the pitch. Murray Kinson and I were doing a podcast in the stands, but our colleague Kieran Kennedy was telling us, and I think it was Keen Tracy from the Indo who asked him the question. But he basically said for that poach in the fifty eighth minute, he waited up and he thought to himself. What would Tyke Byrne do mm. in this situation? And he went for it. And like he he knew, okay, uh, I'm a, I'm going to have a long and, and successful test career. But Tyke Byrne is still sort of the incumbent in this jersey, and he's a monster for Ireland. I'm just going to follow suit here. And like that's a guy like Byrne has become a talisman for Ireland, and he's done that through. He has gone like he has taken the road less travelled in order to get to that position. He's one of Ireland's best players. He was very unfortunate to get injured in this championship, but he's had an unbelievable eighteen months, two years. And you have a guy like Ryan Baird who's come through the school system and whatever else, and he's looking at somebody like Tyg Byrne as an idol almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that, 
that was the moment actually for me because I hadn't really I hadn't really understood the Baird stuff I had, like the athleticism I was like if I hear once more about Ryan Baird's <laughs> athleticism <laughs> while, while, yeah, while he's yeah. also making handling errors it'll drive me mad but th- <laughs> that was the first time that I was like okay that, like I'm seeing some you're seeing something there and then afterwards I was like oh because he was emulating Tiger <laughs> 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 yeah. but I, you know it, th- those are the big moments so like then I was like okay yeah if you can come play England in the Six Nations decider uh, and and you can do something like that I'm like okay I'll, I can hear about his athleticism maybe once or twice more. <laughs> <laughs> some stories away from the rugby uh, that have made the papers today and obviously it's incredibly rugby dominated but there's a few pieces about diving in the GA which has come up a bit Mark O'Shea's written about it in the Irish uh, Mail on Sunday uh, Christy O'Connor's got a piece at the bottom of his article he's also talking about um, Donegal's fall uh, within the Times today as well but um, Sinead this is becoming a bit of an issue assimilation uh, <laughs> or buying freeze I think as they were called once upon a time and players are not afraid to take a tumble right now are we getting to a point where referees need to clamp down uh, well, we have to talk about who's to blame first right one who's so obviously who's, who's to blame obviously Kerry <laughs> oh, sorry did I say that out loud no it's the pesky soccer, soccer players ah, obviously fancy Marco Shea says I have a fair idea where this is coming from the underworked and overpampered world of the Premier League was, was once exclusively over there is now evidently over here I'm disappointed Mark he didn't call it the Premiership he should have been old school <laughs> over, in, over in the English Premiership he does go on though to say that it is embarrassing and he's obviously asked the editor to make sure embarrassing is spelled in capital letters so Mark mm. is very exercised about this um, I am not exercised about it you don't care? Like, well it's not the Premier League's fault and you know like it's sport you know we've got to a point now where we're talking about sport in terms of percentages and like yeah. you know getting that extra edge so you know obviously if you're going to talk about it in that way then people are going to try and win freeze they're going to try and you know cook the books a little bit so like, is it old school GA thinking then Sinead when people say you know the GA it's not meant to be this this isn't soccer I'm you know, more ex- yeah I'm more exercised about like footballers not kicking the ball as much as they used to but that has started to come back a bit so yeah <laughs> I don't know I played junior football about a decade ago and perfectly saw, qualified Go on. well I'm just going to I was just going to say I saw plenty of lads taking hoppers on that field to win freeze <laughs> you know what I mean I don't think this is some sort of revolution <laughs> I think it's probably more so the case as it often is with GA in like the off season or during the league where there's not really a great deal else to talk about because it's only the league quote unquote we all love the league by the way but it's just not the championship and blah 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 and then you manufacture a sort of a controversy I'm not saying the lads have done that by the way that it is a conversation that's ongoing it's just not an important one to me this is a natural conclusion of GA becoming ostensibly a professional sport and how it's prepared for and in how it's uh, performed like how can you sit on shows like these or write columns uh, lending a huge importance to the result of Gaelic games and, and matches within that and then say like, oh, lads are wrong for diving to try and gain an advantage. We're, we place an enormous amount of importance on our county teams or our club teams winning a game and the players, by extension of that, are trying to find ways to win it. And by the way, I think they've been trying to find ways to win games for decades like I don't think it might be more prevalent now um, see I draw a line down the middle of this right so okay. I don't read thank problem. god <laughs> yeah if somebody is going through right and they get a bit of contact when they bounce the ball and potentially you're not going to get the penalty if you don't go to ground and you go to ground I can understand that yeah that's playing clever that's buying a bit of an advantage I don't like seeing players dive to try and get their opponent booked or sent off 
and that's happened a bit in recent weeks you know where guys come into tangle yeah. next thing it looks like oh maybe an elbow come out the umpire gets tricked because somebody hits the ground quickly mm. I don't like that I don't like someone trying to get their opponent yeah or the holding of the face if the face hasn't got hit yeah or hurlers going down and grabbing their face guard as if they've been hitting the face yeah. recently because yeah, yeah. they know that's a straight red card offence and they've actually been hit somewhere around the chest I don't yeah. like that that's where I draw the line and to be fair I, I haven't read the, the, the pieces we're talking about here and if that's more so what they're talking about I would totally agree with that in, in fairness like I think you know there's almost a there's a difference between say like seeking to gain advantage within play and just pure simulation to get another guy removed from the field of play um, I don't know that that's a Premier League thing necessarily I, again I've, I've you see that now in NFL you see it in basketball quite a lot they call it flopping in America mm-hmm. maybe if we started calling calling it flopping in Ireland lads would start lads would stop doing it eventually probably it'll be embarrassed out of people because you know you can't really go home to your home club after like getting a lad sent off because you made up a a smack to the face like that'll Ireland's probably a bit too small eventually for it that's actually that's a key point like (laughs) in the NBA or whatever you continue to get away with it because okay it might go viral or something along those lines but there's no accountability but when you're friendly with some of the guys you're doing it against yeah. uh, or neighbours with them or whatever you know like you'll go down in infamy if you do it too often yeah like know? if my sister did that my dad would have been looking at her going <laughs> really? Like, yeah. well imagine a situation in which you're, you know you're, you're like the a really good junior B footballer or whatever and you become known around your town as a flopper you know? <laughs> I wouldn't take that risk if you're a really good junior B footballer the impression that you want to give is I can go out and have fun and still kick quite well on a Sunday. I probably should be <laughs> playing. I should be playing for the senior team, but I'm mm. not because, you know, I'm just not as focused as they are. I've chosen not to. But I've got the talent. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You don't want to be known as the guy who dives on the ground for the mm. junior yeah. football team. Um, I think as well, when it comes to the argument around the red cards and everything as well, there's a certain extent that people look back at how Tierney McCann was criticising the TV a few years ago when he went down after his hair was pulled. And therefore, I think people are applying that now going, oh, how come people aren't being as hard as they were on him yeah. so therefore there becomes a conversation but as the year goes on I think referees will become very aware of it because I'm sure the referees read the papers I'm sure they listen to all these conversations they're not in a bubble and immune from all of this and I'm yeah. sure they're going to spot something that's Yeah Marco Shea says it should be the black card so if you if you get caught flopping or diving or putting a hand where you didn't get hit that you should get uh, a black card It's so. tremendously subjective and the only thing I would say to Mark's point in that is you get a yellow card in football right now mm. if you simulate um, if you give a black card and someone misses 10 minutes of an important match and it turns out that actually his legs have been clipped yeah. or something that happened that caused the fall um, good luck to a referee please now I think you'd have to be very sure before you do it CCCCCC uh, would be very busy CCCC <laughs> is always busy DRA is always busy I'm sure they'll uh, welcome a few more cases along the way as well um, there's a few other pieces that are kind of interesting to touch around I would definitely have a read um, I know we were kind of talking about outside in the Times Paul Rowan's piece with Lee Carsley who really feels like one of those coaches that got away and we're talking to Kevin Kilban about it a few years ago Lee Carsley was very interested in working for the FAI had done his badges went to Man City uh, looked like he was very promising at that point and the opportunity was there potentially to get him involved with some of the Irish underage teams now he's the England under 21 manager and there's that feeling that potentially he could succeed Gareth Southgate further down the line as England boss uh, but Kyle Osaka also page 16 of the Times they got a lot of football today uh, talking about his remarkable rise from missing the penalty at Wembley and the criticism he took from that to now becoming one of the best players in the Premier League and Shane I was looking in the Sunday Independent as well this is a piece that they took from the Guardian I think it was in the Guardian yesterday as well Jonathan Wilson's piece about Paul Pogba and yeah. it's one of those kind of cautionary tales because we've always been there to criticise Pogba over the last few years about various bits and bobs but 
his life has got pretty dark in the last year. Injuries yeah. throughout the year have curtailed him at Juventus, hasn't been able to play for France, won't be coming with their squad because he's injured next Monday for the match against Ireland. And all this off-the-field stuff and his entourage and his brother all seem to be problems around him as well. Yeah, Troubled Soul in Search of Peace is the headline that Cinder have put on it. And uh, Jonathan Wilson just lays out kind of what's been happening to Pogba. So injuries included, but... Um, Later in the summer came reports that a month ago before that game, so uh, United against Liverpool, um, Pogba had been kidnapped by masked men bearing MI, MI6 assault rifles who had taken him to a flat 15 miles east of Paris and demanded 13 million protection money. That's 1 million for each year of his professional career. Um, Pogba seemingly tried to pay only to be blocked by the bank, although he was able to raise 100,000 euro. Uh, his wife and two children had been threatened during a burglary at his house in Manchester. And then all this uh, comes to light then that his family were involved um, in this. So, you know, it's it's not just kind of getting over the trauma of the incident. It's an ongoing trauma of, you know, these being your, your nearest and dearest and selling stories about him. And, um, you know, there, there's some problems with some of the NFTs, crypto stuff he was doing. You probably have less sympathy about that. But Jonathan Wilson makes that point about sympathy that Pogba is far from the only footballer to have been targeted by criminals. But it's it's not clear what football can do to protect its healthy stars. But it has a duty at least of sympathy. Even if Pogba never plays to anything like his maximum again, he deserves football's understanding and support. So that it's not, you know, he makes the point like people kind of are... Um, a bit dismissive of Pogba like in the haircuts and you know his attitude to wanting to win the Ballon d'Or rather than you know a team uh, <laughs> uh, win but you know it's a, it's a point well made by, by Jonathan Wilson that there's a lot more going on in his life I've always found the discourse around Pogba to be troublesome in all honesty I feel as though he's he's been a lightning rod and an unfair target for I think criticism of a generation almost rather than what should have been specific to him Sinead mentions there like the, the sort of more individual or the more individualistic pursuits and he he's 30 years old but he was probably just on that first wave of players who became brands in their own right and became almost bigger than clubs and, and generated their own individual followings like he, he was maybe a pioneer in that uh, and so became the target for people's ire towards that now you look at it and if it's like Vinicius Jr. or some of the, like Kylian Mbappe, whoever, it doesn't feel like an issue. But with Pogba, it, it was an issue at the time and it almost followed him. And the haircuts and all of those things became an extension of that. Like Paul Pogba came out a year ago, almost to the day, if I'm not mistaken, and said in, in quite a lot of detail that he suffered from depression while he was at Manchester United. And when you see what's come to light about the people around him and what he's been going through, it's perfectly understandable that he would have suffered with uh, mental health issues, depression or, or whatever else. But at that time, it, it, it felt as though that made no impact at all to the perception of him, to the understanding of him. Obviously, he had a documentary, uh, probably in this day and age, not the best move, just insofar as so many footballers release them and they're kind of vanity projects and it almost discredits you in a way. But I thought when he came out and, and, and spoke about his depression and things like that, it, it should have added a, a layer of context to Paul Pogba, the person, which just wasn't taken into consideration again when he was discussed. And I feel as though he is a very good footballer who became so famous that he received a level of criticism that wasn't commensurate to anything that he was putting out there in the world. You've actually never heard a teammate describe Paul Pogba as being problematic in a dressing room or being a cancer on the environment or any of that nonsense. It's almost as something that was him last year as well. Yeah, and look, to be fair, United's fortunes have drastically improved since 
he left, right? But you could say the same for Cristiano Ronaldo in January. You could say the same for quite a few players. Like, no United player has come out, even, and you think of how leaky that United dressing room has been traditionally. No United player has come out and, and criticised Paul Pogba. Nobody ever really had a bad word to say about him. But in media terms, he was always the problem. It was just decided upon that he was the problem, even if it, it was sort of unsubstantiated. Yeah, but and I, 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 yeah, it just annoyed me for several years, to be honest. Yeah, yeah but and the British media do have a kind of obsession with young, moneyed footballers, particularly black ones, mm-hmm. um, and you know, find flaws with the spending of the money. It was a recent one; they were like showing Rashford's flash car, which uh, he was driving in after they'd lost seven nil, as if he owns another car. Yeah, like yeah. it's it's a it's a really laboured point, so there's probably no need to to go over it too much. But you know, that is part of it, and because football makes these stars so young like you're not talking like we talked a lot there about the Leinster Academy but when we're talking there you're talking about teenagers like these lads are being made much younger than that so the idea of being able to have any kind of normal life from a young age is impossible like even the stories about Phil Foden like they're not even able to just go out to a a normal nightclub or a normal pub without being you know set upon in some kind of way Um, so yeah it's just an abnormal life um, trying to be lived by people who have not been prepared for it so yeah it's it's a it's always a strange one when you're trying to put sense on a footballing story like this yeah. when you're, you know, talking about millions and millions mm. of pounds and expectations that are beyond anything we could think of. That's Guys, it's been a pleasure. Time has beaten us <laughs> just as Gavin's Perfect. about to come in to defend Paul Pogba again. <laughs> um, you can catch that out in his own writings. He's preparing his 2,000 words right now about the PA system. So I'm looking forward to uh, reading that. Um, plenty of good stuff in the Sunday papers today. If you missed any of the chat, you can check out the OTB daily feed wherever you get your podcasts if you want to listen back in full. We'll be back next Sunday with the Sunday Paper Review. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.